We finished the series last week on 1 Peter, and now we're going to start a new series on Nehemiah. And uh, one of the themes that we'll see is that God chooses interesting people and works in, in interesting ways to call us to do something for him. So Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Good evening. Before we jump into this study, let me open us up in prayer. Father, we thank you for this wonderful book that I know you're going to speak to your church through. And Father, may you bless our time and bless this time of transition for us as we move into a new series and just a new year for our church in terms of a fiscal calendar. And may you direct our paths. We really need you and we're seeking your spirit and we are looking to your word to guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. So our first study in the book of Nehemiah, so obviously in these first three verses, it's not going to be our typical expository preaching that we go through on here because I have to kind of lay out some background information for this series. And so there's some groundwork for us to kind of lay before we dive into it verse by verse as we typically do. And before we dive into this study, I'm curious to know how many of you were here with us when we moved into this building about 10 years ago. Is there anyone here during that time? One. Awesome. I think in the morning service there was like seven. So there's eight of us. We survived. I wasn't preaching back then. I don't know how many of you guys know this. When the church started 14 years ago, I came on as an assistant pastor. And then six years ago, I was asked to be the interim pastor when the senior pastor stepped down. And to be quite honest with you, at that time, I wasn't even sure if I was going to be asked to remain. And the reason why is if you go back and listen to my first studies, the first study I did was the book of James. If you listen to that, you'll know why. I was just kind of thrown into this pulpit, really. It was just asked from one week that the senior pastor resigned to the following week saying, hey, you're up. And I'm like, oh, great. And seriously, that was like my 10th time preaching ever in my life was like that week. I just didn't get that much experience. You know, I was an assistant pastor and I had a different role. And so here I was. And then two years later, after that point, so four years ago was when I was officially offered the lead pastor position. And so even then, being the lead pastor of this church, I still wasn't sure if I was even going to have this ministry position to be in because the church was not stable yet. So when I took over the church as an interim, there was no reserves in the bank. It was zero reserves. And then like the financials were trending downwards. The attendance was trending downward and all the stuff was trending downward. So it was starting to rebound, but it was still at an unstable place. And so I didn't know how long I would be able to be here. Over the past six plus years, I've been actually wanting to teach the book of Nehemiah because I just felt like it was a good place to start over. 
but then I held off on that interim time because I was an interim, and then I held off on that lead pastor time early on because it was so unstable. And then I've been kind of holding off until we were at a place where we actually did something like buy the building and then kind of weave this series into that. And so last year we had the option to purchase the facilities, you know, the parking lot, this building, the building across the street, and we decided not to do that that instead we were going to invest into the ministry. And so with those funds, instead of purchasing the property, we brought on Pastor Steve. We partnered with an organization called Pace International and brought on Sasha and Genoa to work with the youth in the area. And it's just been a really huge blessing, and it was a good decision. It's a great decision that we've made. And since that time, we've just kind of been growing, like steadily growing over the past few years. And so we felt that it's an appropriate time now to venture into studying this book, even though we're not building a structure, we're building upon the spiritual lives of our community, and we're building up this church community. And what Nehemiah will do is Nehemiah will help us to focus at how ministry is to function, which is really important in our phase of growth. And so starting on April 19th, we're going to add a second morning service. That's something that we've been chatting about. It's something that the elders have been talking about. The ministry staff have been considering for a while now. And we're just kind of at this spot where it's time to do that for our church. And so we've looked at some interesting articles and read some interesting books and consulted with some people about church growth. And one of those people is Tim Keller, where there's this article that shares about these kind of signs that are happening, and we've actually met all of these kind of steps except for the actual second service. And it was really interesting because we did it kind of in retrospect, that we weren't like following a pattern or anything. It just kind of, hey, we've done that. And another one is Gary McIntosh and kind of his book on churches. And so all these kind of things have kind of been falling into place to lead us into this direction. So God's been really faithful to our ministry here, and we're continuing to grow in him. And so we'll look to the book of Nehemiah to center us in his word, to provide us these building blocks for us to continue to have our ministry thrive here. And if you just kind of think about it in this kind of snapshot that I've shared with you in the past six years, where we were actually six years ago considering dissolving the church because we just weren't at a viable place to where just last year, five years later, deciding on whether to purchase the church property, which was $3.2 million, and then deciding not to do that and to invest our money elsewhere. I mean, God's been really faithful, and praise be to God for what he's been doing at our church. And so adding that second morning service isn't just simply for church growth. Our desires are for souls to be one to Jesus and for people to grow in their relationship with Jesus. So I encourage everyone here to please attend that family meeting on March 21st because at that meeting you're going to be hearing stories from people in our church family as to how regeneration has been a blessing to them this past year and how it's impacted them in such a positive way, and that that's what we want to provide to other people. And when we're opening up another service, we're wanting to provide that kind of love and support and grace to the people and to expose people to this great community that has the presence of Jesus in them. The presence of Jesus is in you, and you're making up this great church. And at that meeting, you'll hear about the vision for the upcoming year, You'll receive some training from the author who wrote Discovering Your Leadership Style. He'll be with us that day, Dave Olson. And you'll hear about how God has 
provided for our church, and, and it's just going to be fun. We're going to have food. We're going to have things for the kids to play, and we're going to have some things for adults to play into. I've asked Stefan to look into like that rodeo bull that throws you off, but it's not a rodeo bull. It's a surfboard. I saw this at this one place, and I really want it, so we're looking for that. I want that to be here. And then also, we're going to vote in those new elders. So please come out, and I need to share with you that we really need you in this next season at Regeneration, all of you. We need your input. We need your contribution. We need you to be here praying with us. And so this brings me to identifying various groups in our church, because some of you may be thinking that I'm not needed there, or for some reason you're not kind of in with the church. And so here are a few groups that I just kind of see here. It's just an observation on my end, and it's not an all-inclusive group. But they all start with CH, so I'm hoping that it's easy to remember. The first group is the challenger group. And I think a lot of our church is made up of this group. This group is made up of folks who are just kind of unsettled to where you're kind of skeptical. And even me bringing this up raises your defenses a little bit. And before you get too defensive, I just need to share with you that I'm not picking on you because this is me. I'm talking about me. I'm part of this group. And maybe it's because you've had negative church experiences in your life, or maybe you just have that kind of a personality where you look at things a little bit suspiciously. And it's not necessarily in a negative way, although for some of you, you're just wired to be pessimists. But for others of you, it's your way of investigating and you're curious and you like to challenge things, not in a bad way, but so that you can figure out what works for you, what fits for you. And the other thing is that you are really quite helpful to our community because you ask these questions that help us think and refine how we're doing things and what we're doing. And so your feedback is actually really helpful to us when you're challenging and you're pushing and you're giving us feedback. Now this group sometimes looks for reasons not to be here. You're just kind of looking around, and so you go through a bunch of questions about being here, whether you fit in here, whether you like it here, and I just need to let you know that we love you and that we want you here and that this is a gracious community. This is a community full of grace who loves Jesus and that wherever you go, it's going to be imperfect, so you might as well stay here because it's imperfect anyway, but we're gracious at least, right? So you might as well just stay. Now, there's a second group, and this is like, charge! This is the charge group, right? These guys like to look forward, and they're looking forward. They're futurists. They have this positive, optimistic sense of expectation of what's ahead, that if we're not charging forward, we're going backward. And before we're finished with one project, we're just kind of off to another project. And again, I'm not picking on you, because a part of me is in this group too, so I'm a challenging charger. That's what I meant. So here's a third one, the charting group. Now the charting group, this is an orderly group that can embrace change, but they appreciate this organized approach to change and they like charts. They like spreadsheets and flow charts and things to be in order. And people in this group, you're so needed for the organization and administration of this group. I need you. I am not organized and I'm not administrative. And so Please contribute here. Fourth group, the checking group. You're simply checking us out. You're just here, you're checking us out, and some of you have been actually checking us out for quite a while and not like jumping in. You're just wondering what we're about, figuring out how we operate, what makes us tick, and what kind of community we are. We welcome you. 
ask questions. We're more than happy to answer questions that we can. And here's the last group I'm going to bring up. This is the chill group. This is a huge part of our church too. You just like to chill. You come in on Sunday and you just chill. Not really anything else, right? Let's just be honest. You just come here on Sunday and you chill. And maybe there's one group of you that you've just worked really hard to get us to this point, to where we're currently at, and you feel like, hey, we've arrived at a good place, and I need to relax. I need to kick back for a little bit. I'm tired, and I understand that. And maybe you're thinking, hey, we're financially stable now, and we have more ministry staff, and things seem to be growing, and, and ministry seems to be getting done, so hey, I'm good. And maybe there are some in this group who are just perfectly content with where we are right now and the vision doesn't go further than where we're at right now. And for whatever reason, moving forward and not just chilling and kicking back, it's just kind of like a bother. Like you don't want to do it. And then there's others that you've worked really hard. That's one group. And the others, like that's just who you are. You're just kicking back. You just like to come, sit, and go. And you just like to chill. And Now I'm sure that there are other groups those are just kind of the groups that I've noticed here. And if I thought more about it, like if I was a charting group person, I'd probably have like 20 groups and 20 subgroups and I would have laid out everything. But I'm not, so I only have five. And so the reason why we're studying the book of Nehemiah is to bring all of these types of different groups that I've included and those outside of these things together so that Hopefully, we're going to see through Nehemiah how he centers these challengers, how he directs and he leads the chargers, how he further organizes this charting group, how he provides answers to the checking group, and how he awakens those in the chill group, and how Nehemiah just kind of helps all those groups come together. We know that a lot of people here in Oakland need Jesus, that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. We know that, which is why... We're adding a second service on April 19th. It's not simply for growth. We desire to see souls come to Jesus, for people to experience Jesus with us. And for those of you who have invested into this church, you know that we have a great church. We do. We're a church that is guided by the Holy Spirit. We're grounded by his word and we contextualize the gospel to our world in really relevant ways. We speak to our culture. You guys are really good at those things. All of the outreaches that we're doing, we're good at those things. And as a growing church, we will need to adapt to the changes, the demands, the challenges, the opportunities, all those things that lie ahead. We have to adapt to those things. And it's going to be this continual process of restructuring, retooling, reorganizing, re-engineering, resetting just like it has been for churches ever since the very first churches. Now, speaking of the very first churches, let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 6. A bunch of people were coming to faith at this time, and the church had to figure out for itself, how are we going to get organized? And so here's phase one of that organization, is that they had to identify the challenges that were ahead of them. And in Acts, chapter 6, as with any other growing church, the challenges will be structuring and organizing the church for growth while dealing with complaints and murmurs and moans and groans and all this feedback that you're getting. Because wherever there's growth, there's bound to be this complaint, this murmur, this moaning, groaning, the feedback, right? The feedback is a great thing. 
we need that. We need the feedback in order to identify those challenges. So I welcome those things. Now, read Acts chapter 6, verse 1 here. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there you have the identification of that need there, of that challenge. And then the phase two is this, discerning what needs are of greatest importance. And that's in verses 2 through 4 in Acts chapter 6. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And here's phase three. Delegating those responsibilities to meet those needs. Verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So you identify the challenges, you discern the needs of greatest importance, and then you delegate those responsibilities. And here's the awesome thing, phase four, you watch God work. Verse 7, Acts 6. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so what we have here in Acts chapter 6 is just a snapshot of the principles of Nehemiah at work in the lives of the early church. And we'll need to continue growing in our ability to identify challenges, discern the needs of greatest importance, delegate responsibilities, and then we watch God work. And we'll look to Nehemiah to provide this framework for us to grow a healthier church. Now, back to Nehemiah and back to this background information pertaining to the book of Nehemiah. How did the history of Israel lead to this point where we get to Nehemiah chapter 1? And so, obviously, we can start back in Genesis and go all the way through, but we don't have time for that. We're going to just go to 1 Samuel. And we're just going to look to Saul and Samuel, and we're going to start from that history and then move it up to where we find ourselves today in Nehemiah chapter 1. And this will be really brief. I did a series on 1 Samuel, and so you can listen to that on iTunes if you want to get caught up on 1 Samuel. It's all on there. So in 1 Samuel, the people of God were demanding a king like the other nations around them. They wanted to be like those other nations. And the prophet Samuel felt that the people were rejecting him, but God reminded Samuel, that they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And all of this is in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So Samuel goes ahead and he anoints Saul the king, who on the outside just, he fit the bill. Like he looked the part, right? 1 Samuel chapter 9. But then there was this glaring character flaw in Saul. And the flaw was this, that he wasn't a man after God's own heart. And one of these occasions was when Saul was dishonest about how he dealt with the Amalekites. And so this dishonesty and this not having a heart after God led for God to reject him as king, 1 Samuel chapter 15. And so when we get to chapter 16, in verse 7, chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him, rejected Saul. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now enter David. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. Something really significant happens here. 
reads this. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. 1 Samuel 17. Israel goes into battle against the Philistines, and there's this giant named Goliath who's taunting Israel, and Saul didn't know what to do with Goliath except to incentivize to his people someone to fight against Goliath. So he says, I'm going to offer you great riches. I'm going to offer you my daughter. I am going to offer you freedom for your entire household if you beat that guy. And so no one takes up Saul on his offer. David shows up because he's delivering pizza to his brothers on the battlefield, right? Just cheese and bread. And so he's coming up and he's like, I'll take that guy on. He slays Goliath. And so David, fast forward, eventually becomes king. I know I skipped a ton. He reigns for 40 years. We're in 2 Samuel now. And so 2 Samuel 5.4, he reigns for 40 years. He builds this incredible empire. And by no means is he perfect. We all know the story of Bathsheba and David. He's not perfect at all. But the thing is, he is someone after God's own heart, even though he's sinful. Well, David builds this powerful kingdom. It's just militarily strong, materially rich, politically influential. And after his death, he leaves his kingdom to his son Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 3 now. 1 Kings 3 tells us of Solomon's interaction with God, where he received a wise and discerning mind because when God asked Solomon in a dream what he wanted, Solomon wanted an understanding mind to govern the people, and he wanted discernment between good and evil. He wanted that ability to discern that. And so God granted him that, but on top of that, he granted him so much more. And so he built upon what his father David had built upon already, a powerful empire. Solomon builds on top of that. And so you look at 1 Kings chapter 10, starting in verse 23, it reads, Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Solomon was rich beyond belief. He was wiser than anybody on earth. He had a powerful kingdom, but he had a weakness. You jump over one chapter, 1 Kings chapter 11, here's his weakness. Starting in verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. Why? For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. See how many times the scriptures mention that he turned his heart away from God. And so this was the reason why the kingdom crumbled. This is the demise of the kingdom. He turned his heart away from God. And after Solomon's death, this once powerful kingdom was divided in two. Israel's made up of 12 tribes. The 10 tribes in the north went north. Samaria, that's a northern kingdom. The two tribes went down to the south. 
And southern kingdom, Judah. So the north was known as Israel. South was known as Judah. And these two kingdoms just continued to fight against each other, causing a division, causing them to be vulnerable and susceptible to enemies, which is exactly what happened in 722 B.C. 722 B.C., the Assyrians come into the north. They take over the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is wiped out. Southern kingdom where Jerusalem is, they hold off the Assyrians. And during this time, prophets were sent by God to the south and to deliver messages from God. What did they do? They rejected those prophets. They didn't listen to those prophets. False prophets they received, though. But the true prophets of God, they rejected. And it's much like today. So much like today where many have turned away from God and when given the true word of the Lord, it's rejected. But give them false words. Yeah, I'll take that in. Things that the church really does not stand for, things that the church, the true Bible does not teach, we'll take that in. We'll receive those false prophets amongst us into our world. But teachers proclaiming what is true and what needs to be told and taught and told from God and His truth not accepted. And that's what happened to the people in Judah. Because in 586 BC, Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians. All of this is in the history books, all your secular history books. This is not just a biblical thing, right? This is world history. And Jerusalem falls to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar conquers the southern kingdom. And here in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 19 through 20, it gives us a glimpse of what happened. And it's helpful in giving us a background to the book of Nehemiah. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Now do you notice a transition there? Because who took over was Babylon. But at the end of this verse, it's talking about the kingdom of Persia. And it's so interesting because the hand of God is working in all of this. The Israelites become servants until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. You notice this. Different empire. right? Kingdom of Persia. See, they weren't in Babylonian captivity forever because God was still at work. And you have Saul, who is not a man after God's own heart. David comes in. He is a man after God's own heart. He dies. Solomon takes over. Solomon's heart turns away from God. The Assyrians come take over a divided kingdom in the north. The Babylonians come take a kingdom in the south. They are taken into captivity, stripped from the temple. Temple is destroyed. But God is leading them back. They're not in Babylonian captivity forever. The Persians come in. The Persian Empire conquers Babylon in 539 B.C. And God is at work in this whole thing. Through these series of events, God would lead his people back to Jerusalem and rebuild their community, rebuild their temple, rebuild their wall. And he uses all of these pagan people to do it. He uses the Persians to do it. You notice how God is the architect in designing a way back to him. That's what he did with Jesus. We are separated from God by our sin. And he provided a way 
back to him. God is still at work today. It's not just right here, rescuing from the Babylonian Empire, from the Persians, and going back and building. He is at work today, leading us back to him. He is sovereign. You who have been separated from him, he has a plan. Jesus has come, and he's pulling you back to him. Proverbs chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. Whether it's Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian. It's just a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he will. God is in charge. Whatever is happening in the world, God has not lost control. He's in control. He's just moving it. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And so he uses the Persians to guide them back into there. The Persians came into power, and in the book of Ezra, you can read about the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is still without walls, which means it is vulnerable to enemies and people who don't want to see that temple erected again. Enter Nehemiah. You're thinking, like, finally, he's been talking about all this, finally. We only have a few minutes left, so we're going to be really fast with Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And so we went through all that background information from 1 Samuel to this point. And so the first thing we're told is about Hakaliah. We'll talk about Nehemiah in a little bit. Let's go to Hakaliah. Who's Hakaliah? Nehemiah's dad. That's who he is. Now, what else do we know about him? Nothing. Not a thing. He's mentioned twice in the entire Bible, both times in the book of Nehemiah. Now, if we have no idea who this guy was and all this stuff, why in the world does it matter? Why are we even covering this? Here's why. Because God can use you no matter who you are. You don't have to come from some great pedigree or from some great legacy to be used by God. Who's Hakaliah? Nehemiah's dad. That's all we know. He's not some great prophet. He's not some great teacher. We have no idea. Maybe he was, but the Bible talks nothing about him. God can use you no matter what kind of background you have, no matter where you come from, he can use you. Now, some of you might feel, I have to do that something, whatever that something is, before God can use me. And that is simply not true. You are useful to God when he deems you to be useful to him. That's when you're useful to him. You don't have to jump through these hoops or going through all this stuff. He will let you know when that time is. And some of you might think, I'm only useful to God when. When this happens or when that happens. Simply not true. Continuing on in verse 1. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. Now when was Kislev? It's in the winter. And when was this 20th year? This is in reference to the reign of King Artaxerxes, the Persian king. And so it makes this date around 445 B.C. So is this saying that God only works in the winter? No, that's Santa Claus, right? So only Santa Claus. So who and when? They aren't problems with God. He can use someone with no pedigree any time of the year. You know, I read this interesting article about churches in Boston because they're like getting pummeled by snow and how hard it's been for churches to kind of like get people to even go to church because everything's snowed in and stuff like that. So it's winter time here and it's probably not the most convenient time to travel or to do ministry or anything like that. So it's not like when matters to God. He's going to do things 
with whomever he wants, whenever he wants. And then look at the last part of verse 1. As I was in Susa, the citadel. Now, what was Susa? Susa was the capital city of the Persian Empire. And we know that God can use whomever, whenever, and we also know wherever. Yes, Susa is an important city. But the thing is, it's nowhere near Jerusalem. It's well over 800 miles away from Jerusalem. But God was going to use Nehemiah nonetheless. Some guy over 800 miles away, he was still going to use that guy. Now, who was Nehemiah? You jump down to verse 11 and it'll tell you, I was cupbearer to the king. And we also know that he lived in the citadel. So he lived in the fortress amongst the king and the king's court. And he was the king's cupbearer, which is a very important job. Because one of the ways that the king's enemies would try to kill him or assassinate him was by poisoning him. So this position of cupbearer that Nehemiah had, he had just this incredible trust that the king had given him, that he wasn't in, he wasn't colluding in on that assassination attempt or on his death. And Nehemiah, his job was to try everything that the king would consume before the king himself would partake in that item. So drink, food, whatever. So in my eyes, just that's a pretty sweet job. Have you guys had Persian food? I mean, this is an awesome job. It's delicious. And you imagine what kings are eating, what kings are drinking. This is good stuff. I mean, it's not McDonald's. I'm a total foodie, and I read this. I'm like, man, Nehemiah, you got a great job. That's a dream job. To eat and drink the food of kings. It's like eating at the French laundry every day. I mean, this is like awesome. Anyway, Nehemiah, Artaxerxes, they have a really close relationship, no doubt. Nehemiah put his life on the line for the king every day, multiple times a day. And the king had to trust that Nehemiah would never conspire with any party to have him poisoned. And if you imagine Nehemiah, Nehemiah is not some weak dude or you can't imagine Nehemiah like this because he's part of the king's entourage, right? He's with the king wherever he goes. He's the cupbearer. He is the trusted companion of the king. Now, a king of the very powerful empire, you think he's going to have like this wimpy dude following him around, even if he's a cupbearer? I envision Nehemiah to be just like this really confident guy, this guy that knows where he's walking, that knows who he is, that is going, you know, standing like upright and confident. And God was going to use this guy who was in a strategic position in the king's court to rebuild Jerusalem. And this guy is not someone with an incredible pedigree. Hakaliah, who's that? But he's just a guy ready to serve God despite his lack of pedigree. Whenever it would happen, it's in the middle of winter, Kislev. It's not probably the most convenient time. And it really didn't matter how far he was away from Jerusalem. It didn't matter where he was. He was called to serve there, even though it was 800 miles away. Now look at verses 2 and 3. That Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So they traveled that 800 miles. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. We've been talking about heart since Saul how his heart wasn't towards God. David's was towards God. Solomon's heart turned away from God. 
divided the kingdom. Assyrians took over from the north. Babylonians took over from the south. They end up in Babylonian captivity. Persia takes over. Now Persia's in charge. What about Nehemiah's heart? In Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, it's written, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what does Nehemiah talk about? The people in Jerusalem. He's concerned about them. That's where his heart and his mind is at. They were with his people. And so you can learn a lot about a person by just listening to what they like talking about. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so you can see Nehemiah's heart through what he's talking about with his brother Hanani. So through our study of Nehemiah, we'll be able to see who God uses We'll be able to learn the principles of a thriving, healthy ministry. We'll be able to look at some of the organizational aspects of accomplishing a vision. And we'll be able to get a better idea of how to serve God. We need you to be doers in this next season at Regeneration. James chapter 1, verse 22 writes, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We need all of you. And you folks in the evening service are actually quite crucial in us kind of adding that second morning service because we would really need you to serve. You know, you're attending this evening service and if you had an option to serve one service and then to attend one service and to worship at one service, it would be a tremendous help to us. And some of you are already doing that. Some of you are serving in the morning and this is where you attend the evening service and we thank you for that. But here are some suggestions as to what we need all of you to do in the next three to four months. Here's a suggested to-do list. First thing is that you would commit to praying for us. Commit to praying for our church. We need your prayers. And please don't look at that addition of that second morning service as like an isolated thing that you're not part of it. We're a church family together, and we're needed, all of us together. The second thing is to study the book of Nehemiah on your own. Don't just wait for the Sunday to come around, and then we kind of just break open the word at that time, and then read it for the first time then. Start studying this on your own, and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the things that he wants you to hear, and then do those things. So pray, study. Third thing is to fellowship with one another, sacrificially. Some of you are really great at investing into one another's lives. And the more that we get to know one another, the more we're going to extend care to one another, the more we're going to serve one another, the more we're going to love one another. So I just encourage you to invest into one another's lives, fellowshipping with one another. Prayer, study, fellowship. Just three suggested things that I'm hoping that our church commits to in the next three, four months. Now, I think we're at a defining moment in the history of our church. I've been at Regeneration for 14 years since the start of this ministry. I have never said those words because I don't want to cheapen them. This is the first time I've ever said them, aside from the morning service. But I feel that we are at a defining moment in our church history. I've met with four church planters in this past two weeks about planting a church in the Lake Merritt area. And I met with a church planter right after service who's from Europe, who's a missionary to Europe, but he's looking to come back and he wants to plant a church in Oakland, not necessarily Lake Merritt. 
There has been so much church planting activity in Oakland in these past couple of years that God is doing something here. He's doing something. I want us to discover that together, that we're going to discover that together, that we're going to walk in there, we're going to pray about it, we're going to study together, and we're going to fellowship together so that we know each other better, and we're going to discover together what that is. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Father, in this next season at Regeneration, Lord, not really knowing what you're going to do, because six years ago I would have had no idea, God, that we would still be here. And four years ago I wouldn't have any idea that we would be at the place where we're at. And you use the foolish to confound the wise, and it's so true for our churches. It's just a testament of your hand at work here, Lord. God, thank you so much for your favor we feel so loved that you've provided us so much, not just financially, but in great people, in our ministry staff, in our eldership, and the people who attend here and extend love and grace to our community, who are just the hands and feet of Jesus, who are doers of the word. Father, may you activate everyone here, that all of us have a part to contribute to bringing souls to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.